Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. Um, welcome, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, I'm lucky to have um, the folks from the Oleander Review, uh, who I will now identify <laughs> by name. Um, Sarah Sala is the editor in chief of the the Oleander Review, a founder and co-founder with Amanda Nichols, uh, who's also in the studio. Hello, Amanda. Hi. Um, and Elliot Long, poetry editor. Hello. Uh, we also have contributor Rachel Harkai, uh, who you'll recognize uh, from her voice probably immediately when the dulcet tones come over the, the airwaves. Uh, Rachel was a former host of the Living Writers Show. Welcome. Welcome back, Rachel. Thank you, T. I'm really, really glad to be here. Oh, it's good to see you. And <laughs> Rachel just flew in and made that like madcap journey from the airport. Mm-hmm. Like, So it's pretty exciting, the, right of the, li- the, right, the life of the writer. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm really thankful that uh, the Oleander Review invited me to uh, be in town here and that we could all be here together. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's the reason for the the season here. We're gathered here together <laughs> because tomorrow the Oleander Review is going to have its launch at Shaman Drum. Uh, Sarah, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Give us the nuts and bolts. Sure. Um, our first issue is the fall 2007 issue that came out, and we're going to be celebrating that at Shaman Drum tomorrow at 7 p.m. Elizabeth Kostova, Rachel Harkai, and Cyan James are going to be reading from um, just things that they're working on, really. I actually don't know what they're going to read. Elizabeth is going to read poetry. Um, Sign is going to read a bit from a story, essay, and poetry. And Rachel can probably tell you more than I can about what she's going to read. Yeah, why don't we start with that? Rachel, what are you planning to read? You know, um, I'm not sure yet. Um, I've got a couple <laughs> things in mind. I've got some poems I've been working on. Um, I might ven- venture into the terrifying world of reading fiction for other people, <laughs> which I um, am a little afraid of, but uh, since I uh, got this residency position, it's been a, a kind of a new project for me. Yes, so. where, where are you? Where are you writer in residence right now? Um, in June, I moved to a town, a mid-sized town in the upstate of South Carolina called Spartanburg, and um, I'm part of a small residency program there that is um, really wonderful, really unique. I live... Um, in a building with an art gallery and um, a venue space with three visual artists, and we're there for eleven months making work and um, living together. Wow! And is it so, are there instances of collaboration then because you're you're sharing the space? Is that part of the? Yeah, the it's almost the collaboration is almost inevitable in the sense that we're around each other so much that even if it's not intended to be a collaborative project, we're constantly bouncing ideas off each other. And I think that um, just being in a very visually oriented uh, environment has really affected my work um, in, in a couple of different ways. So, Oh, great. Well, maybe we can hear more about that a little bit, yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. Well, well, well let's, let's, uh, let's turn to the Oleander <laughs> review and, and we've got the staff here. Um, is it fair to say like the, the backbone, the very backbone of the Oleander Review is here in the studio sure, today? Sure, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amanda co-ed- or, um, was the co-editor-in-chief with me last year. Um, and so is that, so you both 
produced. That's definitely this, what, what um, people will both be of seeing us. and buying, and mm-hmm. and and you can get this at, at Shaman Drum, and then also it's available. Nicola's and uh huh. And there's a place in Adrian, Michigan, a tiny little place called Chalner's um, Bookstore, and actually at my dad's law office. So that's Stanley <laughs> and Sal and Associates. He sells them right uh, at the conference. Who window. was underwriting the cost of the show? No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. You can get it online not, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's oh yes. The website. Would uh, actually our website is kind of hard to um, manage, oh, but okay. it's, <laughs> I mean, if you Google Oleander Review, it'll come right up, so. Okay, and you can purchase it that way, too. Uh-huh. Good to point out, Elliot. That's good. So, do you guys want to tell a little bit about the history, um, how it happened? Because you saw a need. There wasn't anything like this here. Uh, Amanda's nodding. Yeah, well, um, it was sort of an idea that sort of tumbled about in my in my head for about three or four months before I did anything about it. Um, I have a friend at Michigan State who, or she graduated actually in the spring of 03, or of um, 07, she graduated from high school in 03. Um, she was the um, assistant editor of the Red Cedar Review at Michigan State, which is an undergraduate-run uh, literary review there. And it's the oldest in the country, actually. It's, I think, for, about a little over 40 years old at this point in time. So um, she That's was really always impressive. taught. Yes, and it's, it's very all student-run. Yes, it's all undergraduate-run. Um, they do all the reading and selecting of the work. And so she and I had talked about it um, with each other and she told me how much of a valuable experience she thought it was for her and her career as a writer and as an English major at the, at uh, Michigan State University. And so this sort of floated around in my head and I thought, well, we don't have anything like this at Michigan and yet we have such a very strong writing community here. So I went to the king of creative writing at Michigan, Keith Taylor. <laughs> I love that. The king. King, the king. He is. Um, and I didn't I didn't know him at the time, and he sort of leaned back in his office chair and and thought about. It. He said, "Oh yeah, I know the I know the Red Cedar. I was published there actually in the '70s." So he sort of had a good perspective on it, and uh, he helped me get connected with Sarah. He said, "Oh, I have this name of the student who I think would do a really good job um, helping you helping you create this new organization." And coincidentally, Sarah and I just sort of happened to know each other from another class, and so we met up in I think it was um, was it like December of. December of uh, it was it was December of 2006 and it just sort of it went from there we started having meetings because we weren't a registered student organization we couldn't have meetings in the university buildings without paying so we had them in my (laughs) living room um, much to my roommate's chagrin and I think everyone just thought when when they got these emails from me that it was so shady and so suspect <laughs> because it's a way it for a man like, to get yeah. potluck food yeah, or exactly. something. Yeah, get people in the door. And all the other people in my apartment building, I think, thought, why are there 40 people coming in and out of our door? Wow. So so instantly there was interest then. You said 40, yeah. 40 people coming to the initial meetings for the mm-hmm. for the review. There was a lot of people who were um, immediately interested. And um, just in terms of, I mean, financial support and university support, it was there from the very, very beginning. I remember walking into Keith Taylor's office with Amanda Nichols, and um, at, the, at the end of our meeting together with Keith, he looked me right in the eye and he said, is this something that you want to do? Do you want to take this on? And when we walked out of there, I think one Amanda said to me, or I said to Amanda, we just started a magazine. We had no, <laughs> we didn't have a name, we didn't have a staff, but there was that excitement, like we just started something and we were really gonna do this. So from there the excitement's just built and we're really excited about our reading event tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that'll be the first, that's that's the, the first one, is it? It, it is our first, first official. We mm-hmm. did a uh, student um, reading at uh, Crazy Wisdom back in October, but this is the real deal. We're really excited to have Elizabeth Costa reading for us tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and Rachel and Cyan. Oh, like, yes. And 
being at Shaman Drum, it's it's yeah. definitely uh, the rite of passage, yeah. isn't it? And mm-hmm. it's, it's very like star-studded, I think. Ann Arbor <laughs> celebrities, but and the lit- the literate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like literate. It was um, just one thing off of what what Sarah was saying about our excitement. It was so refreshing because. Um, throughout the month of December, right through exams, everyone, last December in, in 06, um, everyone sort of, uh, I guess, they bared with me when I went through this exhaustive interview process of trying to find people who would head up our genres, our fiction, our nonfiction, our poetry, and our art. And I probably interviewed 25 people. I just sat in Espresso Royale and stayed all day <laughs> at this table, and just people mm-hmm. came in and out. And every single person that I talked to was so excited. And so that really was, for me at least, a validation that we were doing something that yeah, but that how difficult too yeah. with the choice. Oh, yeah. Everyone's so excited. Oh, it was. And, Everyone. And, and, I mean, I, I, I was just so excited that people liked my idea that it was, it was really great to see everyone come out and, and take you know twenty minutes to just talk to me about what they were interested in doing. And so, so Elliot yes. Law here, Elliot, poetry mm-hmm. editor. He was somebody who rose out. Yes, it stood out. Yes, and Ellie and I had a math class together uh, the next semester, which was sort of, I, I officially call it math for dummies, but so we had some fun on that as well. So Ellie and I got to know each other, and he was definitely the right choice, I think, for our, our poetry mm-hmm. position and brings a, a, such a great attitude to it. So. And, and so, and when you're mentioning staff, uh, I think I read that you had maybe 40, 40 people or 50 people on uh-huh. staff. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Like, is it, do you, is it just, um, like, it's so it's obviously not for credit at all. This no. is just out of Mm-mm. love and yes. passion. <laughs> right? so, yeah. so when I say we have a staff of about 40 people, um, we have, Elliot is our poetry editor, and then we have um, a nonfiction editor, um, an art director, um, and what am I missing? Fiction. 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 So, I mean, we have, there's one person that heads up each department, and then within that, as we get submissions that come in, we'll have what we call a read, and I will e- email everyone and say, whoever wants to read fiction, Thursday night at 7, we're going to take over a conference room in Angel Hall, and we'll just literally spread out all over the table stories that have come in. And so it's kind of this amazing process where people are reading and they're at all different kind of stages in a piece and someone will just start reading out loud like this is an amazing piece that I just started reading or like listen to how funny this Mm. line is or like (laughs) this is bad or this is good and it's just a really great atmosphere of people who love writing right it's definitely a bonding experience when we got we got some very very strange stuff last year um mix in with the excellence how did you go about soliciting for it then like what was your approach for the first getting the word out well um we milked a lot of personal connections that was definitely a source (laughs) of submissions well because you say authors from around the world of all backgrounds Mm -hmm. levels of education are eligible to be published this is like your mission statement Mm -hmm. it sounds like um so yeah so what 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 happened there how did you throw the net well i think we started out really um milking our, our creative writing professors here at u of m and talking to keith and saying who can you? Who do you think you could get help us get submissions from? Um, and we we emailed. We went through um, an exhaustive list of creative writing programs, both undergraduate and graduate at universities mm-hmm. throughout the whole country, and sent emails to probably like two hundred, maybe maybe more, um, two hundred universities, and then they uh, graciously mostly passed them on to uh, to their students and their and their faculty. So that really helped us sort of get a, a wide swath of. 
um, submissions from around the country and not just here in Ann Arbor and in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So, and and what was the what would be your average per week in the mailbox? At first, or was did it just start building gradually and then it was packed? That's what I imagine. <laughs> well, last year everything was very very new to us. So I mean, we'd get a submission and I'd call Amanda right after class. Amanda, <laughs> we just got a poetry submission. Like, do you want to come upstairs and read it with me? And um, so from there, I mean, uh, we could get anywhere from five to ten submissions a week. Um, this year, actually, because we have, um, we tried this new thing where I had everyone on staff. We have about a 50-person staff uh, this time. So everyone wrote five letters to um, authors that they really, really were impressed with. And so, um, I mean, someone, like I wrote to David Sedaris last year, and he <laughs> wrote me back a postcard from Japan that I still have. Um, so this year, a lot of more um, established writers have been contacting us back. Actually, Mary Gateskill sent me an email the other day um, responding to one of our letters. Um, and so really, the submissions this year have been a lot, a lot more than last year. But um, like Amanda said, we do, we'll um, talk to the, our friends in writing classes and things like that. And then... Um, well, because part of the mission would be to include the work of, of students here at the university definitely. in the undergrad mm-hmm. program and in maybe the MFA program. Or, or Definitely. That was another thing we did last year, um, especially as our as our submissions deadline approached and we really wanted to start putting things on paper and we, we felt like we needed some more stuff. We went and made personal pitches to all the of the English 323 and 423 mm-hmm. creative <laughs> writing classes, poetry and fiction, and we sent stuff out to the, the essay writing classes. And so we really barraged the university with, with email spam, basically, and, and personal pleas. And it, I, think, <laughs> I think it paid off. You know, for that, I think that was definitely um, an important part of our first issue was building this infrastructure of People knowing our name and people knowing who we were and, and putting out a quality issue so that people um, down the line can say, oh, yeah, Oleander, I've heard of Oleander. Mm-hmm. They tend to they tend to put good things in their yeah, pages. Yeah, and it looks it looks beautiful, too, like the quality of the printing and the cover and the wide spine yeah. so you can see it clearly <laughs> yeah. on a shelf. Yeah, we actually go through Malloy Incorporated, and they're very um, friendly. We had no idea what we were doing when we started out. I mean, just... I'm the, one of the staff members that walked in off the street. That's how much we knew about books. So we actually uh, went through a tour and saw from the ground up where the paper comes from, how it's put together and things like that. We took our whole staff over there. So as Amanda and I were learning, our staff was learning just as much and as fast as we were, too. Oh, that sounds great. And then people will stay with you then, hopefully. And, mm-hmm. and then hopefully. be recruiting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's all. I mean, I'm, I'm not alienating yeah. them. Right? I still I feel sort of bad. I'm still sort of hanging on. I uh, I graduated in the spring, but I'm still like... Hey Sarah, can I do anything? What's going on? I, oh, we love it. It's when my artists. baby, so yeah. Uh, yeah that's how, yeah. How could you mm-hmm. separate that quickly yeah. from it? Of and it's course. wonderful just to see. I'm I'm just amazed at the growth that we're seeing in the past. You know, past four or five months since since I sent it to Malloy the last draft, and I was like, oh, yep. can't believe this is done. But it, it's really <laughs> been an amazing process. And, and right now, you're also we'll mention this again towards the end, but you're also accepting submissions we now are, as well, right? Like that's. Mm-hmm no longer rolling it's sort of you're reading from january 5th to yeah we're reading we take submissions until april of this year um and that's going to be every year we read um from january to april and you can send it to our address in angel hall or you can look up our website um 
Occasionally, I take um, people email me things. I mean, if you're if it really gets down to that, so we take it any way we can. And how many issues per year? How many? We're just publishing annually right now because okay. it's uh, pretty expensive to do and a, it, and a it lot of work. Like it would be, yeah, yeah. Plus, you you have classes and yeah. you have and now you have jobs. Yeah, because you're working for the t- Detroit Tigers, yeah. Amanda. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's take a short break and then we'll be back. And Rachel, let's let's. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe some reading. Um, you're listening to the Living Writers Show. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. And today we've got the crew from Oleander Review and um, and contributor Rachel Harkai, former host of The Living Writers Show, is also here with us. And so now, could we have a could we have a bit of a reading from the the, the magazine? Yeah, sure, T. I would love to um, I would love to read a little bit. Um, well, actually, wait, wait, let me stop you. OK, I am going to read your bio from the back. Oh, we're going to do you. this the um, <laughs> would you, uh, official way. Huh? <laughs> yes, would you like an updated visual. one? Here's an updated one actually on the sheet if, oh, you, if you'd yes. like to read that one. This would, oh, this is lovely. Yes. Okay. Oleander Review at Shame and Drum tomorrow, 7 p.m. Um, all right. Rachel Hartkai is currently the writer in residence with Hub City Writers Project of Spartanburg, South Carolina, a recipient of bachelor's degrees in creative writing and comparative literature from the University of Michigan. Rachel has received Hopwood Awards for both poetry and nonfiction and is the former host of The Living Writer Show, <laughs> a literary talk show that you're just listening to at the second. Um, she was the editor of HCWP's anthology. Oh, so that would be the, the Hub, uh-huh. Hub, Hub City, City Writers Project. Hub. That's it. Okay. Anthology of regional poetry titled Still Home, the Essential Poetry of Spartanburg, uh, which will be released in April 2008. And her work has appeared in Hotel America, Michigan Quarterly Review, Portland Review, Oleander Review, (laughs) and elsewhere. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank Uh, you. Um, I said it already, but I'm just so thrilled to be back here. I I really miss WCBN. I think about it pretty frequently. Um, But uh, it's funny to be on this side of the the table for once. Um, I'll go ahead and read a little bit um, 
since we're here for the Oleander Review, I'll read a little bit from an essay that I had published um, by the wonderful people at Oleander Review. I've been able to trick a couple of people into publishing my poetry, but uh, (laughs) these ones were the first to uh, take my nonfiction. Um, I'll read a short passage from this essay um, called The Silence of Objects, which is kind of a mishmash of my personal experience um, along with some commentary on work by Rilke and Sartre. Um, All right. Thing soul. This is what Rainier Maria Rilke calls the spirit we fashion within inanimate objects. In his short essay, Some Reflection on Dolls, Rilke explores the attachment that we as children often develop to objects. He examines how children always find items from which they cannot, from which they must not, be separated. Perhaps it wasn't a doll. Perhaps it was another type of toy, a book, or blanket. But whatever its shape, whatever its color and form, we held onto our object always, as though a fiercer grip might better enable it to combat the inevitable onslaught of our regular nightmares. These were the objects of our trust and our affection. They were taken into cots, dragged into the heavy folds of illnesses, present in dreams, involved in the fatalities of nights of fever. Sometimes more consistently than with our parents, more consistently than with our siblings, these objects were with us through the most trying times of our simple youths, as if the holes we wore in their tiny outfits and the bald spots we rubbed into their plastic hair weren't evidence enough. The extent to which we became attached to these objects is fully revealed in how we gave our objects names. They were often simple names, names derived from the object's everyday title, but however plain her name, Dolly or Blanky, was our friend, we were able to talk to her. This was because we, in all of our imaginative naivete, were able to forge a spirit, a life, and a history within her. When I was a child, every object had a soul. Rilke understood this, saying, You, souls of all these solitary games and adventures, ingenuously complacent soul of the ball, soul in the smell of the domino pieces, inexhaustible soul of the picture book, soul of the school satchel, towards which we always felt a little distrustful because it was often so obviously on the side of the grown-ups. Oh yes, I've forgotten about the grown-ups. They too talked to us. They too told us we were loved. Though we were moving through an age, as Rilke recognizes, in which the simplest love relationships were quite beyond our comprehension, we took their word for it. We, as of yet, had encountered no reason to distrust them. So we told the grown-ups we loved them back. We said it to them in the same way that we said it to our dolls. But somehow, the grown-ups never seemed to understand us like our dolls did. Why was this? Are we not strange creatures, asks Rilke, to let ourselves go and be induced to place our earliest affections where they remain hopeless? Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome. Um, that was a really that was a really interesting essay for me to write. Um, How so? A lot of it dealing with my own um, difficult attachments to certain objects I've had in my life and um and non-attachment yeah exactly exactly it's a funny it's a funny thing to try and figure out why we become um you know so attached to these symbols of other things symbols of relationships symbols of time um and since I wrote that essay I I write in there about a couple different people a couple different things and um I write about some elderly neighbors that I have um 
questioning what's going to happen to their whole slew of objects when they pass away and since they have passed away. And um, I write about a, a piano that was given to me as a gift, which has since been dismantled in order to be moved out of um, the apartment I used to live in. So um, looking back on where I was when I wrote that essay is sort of an interesting thing now that um, those objects have kind of disappeared. Yes. Yeah. Which is sort of where you're going with the towards the end of the essay as well. Mm -hmm. Become that. Mm -hmm. um, not to not to give a spoiler. Make it for the essay. <laughs> Read the rest of the essay. There's many things. There's there's a junk man in it. Right? Mm -hmm. I loved that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that was a really interesting. It was really interesting to see um, someone who was consistently confronted with other people's unattached objects, the, the things that people no one no one wanted them anymore. So. Um, it's for, interesting for many reasons. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about um, when you're sifting through junk and you find something that you really like, wondering why why that person didn't want it anymore. So, yes, I, I don't know if it's it doesn't seem to be a un, a uniquely writerly preoccupation, but I wondered when I was reading your essay because you you did you you imagined so much like about the the, the water the water suites when you found like the two albums mm -hmm. of the water music or so and mm -hmm. um and and creating this whole like finding out pieces of this person's life and and why he was not dear to anyone mm -hmm. that was was um, anyway lo lovely moment in your, in <laughs> thank your essay. you thank you um yeah you can read that um if you pick up a copy of the oleander yes review. thank which you rachel which you can do <laughs> shame and drum <laughs> and, mm -hmm. definitely and 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 other places online okay well um so um why this is like the most obvious question to ask so i'm going to go ahead and ask it why oleander review that is a very good question. <laughs> Sarah and I, I, you know, I had this idea to start to start this publication, but I had no concept of the name, and, you know, it was sort of based off the idea of the Red Cedar Review, and so Keith Taylor said, well, there's already a Huron Review, you know, the Red Cedar <laughs> runs, runs through Michigan State's campus, and, you know, Sarah and I think both decided we didn't want to, to sort of go that direction and, and, and blatantly copy off of their, their title, um... I don't know. It for me, I think it, it just it just sounded right, and it sounded sort of different and unique. And um, I think Sarah, it was Sarah's idea, and she said <laughs> How'd that. How'd you come up with yeah. it, Sarah? <laughs> Actually, um, after we had started, I, I quotes around started the magazine, like said we were going to start a magazine. <laughs> um, Amanda and I met, and I I really just scoured the internet. I typed in like archaic words or um, <laughs> random things, and I just came up with this list. I think. Um, it was Oleander, Hawthorne Review, probably like Orchid Review. I don't know, some some other flower. And then I think um, there was Cellar Door too, wasn't there? Yeah, we we were gonna do. I really like Cellar Door Review because um, that those that word combination is actually um, supposed to be the most beautiful combination of words in the English language. How so? Um, just because of the way it sounds when it comes out of your mouth. I don't know when it rolls off the tongue. Um, cellar Door Review. Just that just, no, one just, phrase. <laughs> Just cellar door. Oh, just cellar just door. door. Um, but then, I mean, I googled it, and there's like three different other cellar door reviews or like cellar door magazine. So, um, we came to Oleander, and I mean, that's the one that we really thought um, we could stand behind. So, and it was a sound quality of some sort, or you, or plant life. Um, <laughs> or maybe there's no reason and I can let go of that like I well, mean you just like kind of if that was the one that but why are you standing behind it <laughs> well 
The oleander is actually um, a very beautiful white flower that is poisonous if you ingest it. So in terms of creative writing, um, I think a lot of times people come to writing and think of it like fluff, as like fluff or ephemera, um, something that's not very um, sturdy. But I mean, we think of writing as uh, a very important part of the community. And um, I mean, writing is an amazing thing that can change uh, people's lives. So we wanted something um, that looked beautiful on the outside, but was really, I mean, packing if you looked closely. And so, so d- and don't eat the book. <laughs> um, you don't might, ingest You the might book. be able to eat the book. Okay. There's, there's not necessarily, it's not made <laughs> out of oleander. <laughs> exactly. It's not poisonous. Okay. Enough of the goofy humor. All right. On my part, you guys crack jokes as you will. Um, Rachel, you also, you're, you're a writer in residence mm-hmm. um, in, in Spartanburg, South mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, so you've you've got new work. Uh, what are you What are you working on right now? Well, I've been working on all all sorts of things. Um, the nice part about being um, in the position that I am in right now is that this residency is particularly long. It's one of the longer residencies in America. It's eleven months, and um, so when I you know when I moved there, I felt like I really had a lot of time to experiment with a lot of things. Whereas you know. I'm sure you guys understand when when we were in college, um, there's a pressure to, to really just stick with one thing, stick with what you know. So, um, you know, I, I have been experimenting, uh, reading and writing some fiction, um, trying to do some nonfiction essays that are geared toward um, people, I guess, quarter lifers, you could call them. I don't really know. What, like, what do you call us? <laughs> quarter lifers? People in their 20s who are sort of dealing with... Um, the issues of you know leaving leaving their past behind, moving straight to South Carolina um, after college was a jarring experience for me to say the least. Um, I live with three people in their mid twenties, and those are pretty much the only young people I have around. So it's nice to be here. Um, <laughs> coming back to Ann Arbor is like I kind of felt like I was coming back, you know, home and recognizing. Um, that I should have appreciated, you know, my parents more than I ever did. Like coming back to Ann Arbor, are they just, listening? Say, give I a think shout out. they might be listening. If you're, hi mom, um, <laughs> if you're listening, I, I told her that I was going to be on um, the radio again, so maybe she's listening. But um, coming back here, there's there's just so much to appreciate. There's so much, you know, there's so much culture here, and um, there's just a wonderful group of young people, like the folks at Oli Review, who are constantly um, trying to provide the community and um, support the literary community. Um, in terms of just putting people's work out there. So um, that's something I've really grown to appreciate. But um, I, like always, I'm writing poetry. I'm always trying to write poetry. It's kind of like my fallback. Um, But like I said, the residency was a a funny experience. I've got one short poem I can read um, that kind of in my mind, sums up the experience for me. It's called it's called Prelude, um, and the epigraph is from a poet. I don't know if you have you guys read Dean Young. I actually haven't. No, Dean but. Young. He's great. Um, well, sometimes he's great. Sometimes I love him, and sometimes I feel like I don't. But um, this is called Prelude, and the epigraph reads: "So much life we cannot have or find or repeat, yet so much we had and found." From the kingdom of second chances, we inherit February, king-sized and defective. Long winter has drawn my number under a sickle moon, so I leave my short slip in the closet until its brocade becomes buffalo plaid. To imagine living here was no different from what became a real life. Now, 
in the parking lot of wishful thinking, evening, may we empty simply our desire. The smart thing I did was gifting everything I cherished. When you're as dumb as I am, good things happen to you. (laughs) Um, So I guess that's kind of a summation of how I feel about the whole thing. (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Rachel Harkai, the folks from the Oleander Review. And we'll hear from Elliot Long when we're we're back, the poetry editor. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. And today, um, we've got the Oleander Review uh, folks here. Sarah Sala, Amanda Nichols, Elliot Long, and Rachel Harkai. Um, Elliot Long is the poetry editor. Welcome. Yep. Uh, Hello. Say a few words, Elliot. <laughs> here, you, what, what did you, uh, besides sort of choosing, being sort of the last word on the poems, I would expect in in the review here. Um, you also talked to Robert Pinsky uh, and interviewed him. Uh, yeah, um, Pinsky was the writer in residence here for a week in uh, I think the spring of two thousand five, and I was in a modern American poetry class with uh, Professor Larry Goldstein, and we read his book called Jersey Rain, and then he also gave a reading um, somewhere on campus. I don't remember where. And yeah, <laughs> and dur- and um, during the reading, uh, I went to it, and he said a lot of good things about Michigan, and I remembered that from later on. And um, oh, and Pinsky's a former U.S. poet laureate. Um, and anyway, so uh, he, uh, I remember him saying that, and I, you know, I was like, all right, well, so maybe I'll, I'll try it at least, you know, I'll give it a give it a shot. So you emailed so, him. Well, I first had to email his uh, agent or whatever to make sure that I could get his email address or whatever mm-hmm. and go through those steps. And she actually, his agent emailed me back like later on that day or the next day. I wasn't prepared for it at all. Like I thought it was going to be a long <laughs> process, right. you know. And she and she's like, yeah, I'm gonna send it his way. And if he wants, if he, you know, and you know, and then she emailed back and said, yeah, um, give him a sh- here's his email address, you know. And so I had nothing planned at all. Like I thought it was going to be a while. So I started reading. I got like every book that he has from the library, and I read pretty much just a ton of things, and to set up for the interview. And, and, and how did you choose to do it on a? Because it was a. Was it a written via email? Yeah, it was through. You... It was through email. I wrote him all the questions. I wrote about I think twenty five questions or so, 
and just said, you know, here's some questions I was ho- hoping for you to answer, you know, answer any or all of them. And, and he wrote back, like, I think a couple weeks later with, with some answers, and it was great. And did then you have a, did it spark a correspondence, Elliot, where you, res- like, followed up on a few questions? Or, or had you sort of, 25 sounds pretty exhaustive as a list mm-hmm. of questions, so maybe you asked everything I, that yeah, there I was to much possibly a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> Would you like to read us part uh, of it, yeah, then? Like, I'm a, gonna, a section. I'm going to read um, from the end of the of the interview the last few questions that i asked him okay and uh and also he uh i think he's the poetry editor for slate magazine right now and then i think he teaches at boston university as well and so uh so this is uh oleander recently you've written in slate about the ridiculous disdain for the difficulty difficulty in and of poetry would you be more inclined to say this idea stems from people not wanting to put in both the intellectual and emotional effort it takes to understand a poem, not realizing the rewards of their time spent, or could it be something else? Pinsky. American in- anti-intellectualism, the problem of courage to make a new culture when an old is left behind, is a great national struggle that goes back long before television and long before Edward Guest. Mark Twain wrestled with it. In show business terms, Melville's big hit was White Jacket and his flop was Moby Dick. Long before Lawrence Welk drove Sid Caesar off television, Twain and E.A. Robinson and many other American artists struggled with this part of us in themselves as well as outside themselves. Nor is it to be merely regretted and sighed about. The anti-intellectualism is part of the challenge for artists in a democracy, and sometimes the vulgarity needs to be there as a counterweight to anglophile prissiness or academic sterility. The attempt to make poetry friendly, easy, grinning, folksy is part of a long, ongoing American story. The attempt keeps popping up, and it always fails, because we crave and deserve something more. We want As I Lay Dying and Miles Davis and Sid Caesar, even though for a while we fall for Gone with the Wind and Welk and so forth. Uh, Oleander. In some of your past articles for Slate, you've gone against the grain and written about anti-poem poems during Poetry Month or anti-love poems for Valentine's Day. What is your least favorite poem and what do you think people can learn from the poems they dislike? Pinsky. A great American poet wrote the stiff, bombastic, false, and tedious Ash Wednesday. The poem was worth reading and thinking about because the author of The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and The Wasteland and Four Quartets wrote it. I will continue to think about the reasons and enigmas of that for as long as I can think. And uh, the final question, Oleander. Though you have written about many different topics in your poems, the ones that have always intrigued me the most are those that have been about the relationship between people and commonplace objects. Why do you, Why have you always shown infinity for this dynamic and what do you hope exploring it reveals? Pinsky. The occasions for art are everywhere. When Sylvia Plath looks at her newborn baby, when Marion Moore Moore imagines or sees a steeplejack, when Keats goes into his backyard and hears a nightingale, when Hopkins views a smoggy sunset, when Marvell considers Appleton House, or Ben Johnson realizes he is not a young or handsome lover, when Sidney decides to translate Petrarch, or when Shakespeare reads through those translations, those are in occasions that crystallize emotion and thought into a particular unique work of art for each poet. Even Johnson's poem on the death of his first son, even Robert Hayden's poem, Frederick Douglass, are not merely those subjects. They each are something less predictable, more urgent than any straight line to or from the child or Douglass could indicate. 
A chart in life's still life can give more emotion, have more thought and feeling in it than a rhetorical history painting or a genre picture. Sometimes the more clearly commonplace the object, the more clearly mysterious the process that the object occasions. Thank you. Thanks, Ellie. And um, one of the things I found most interesting about putting this together is because I mainly just read poems, and I, mean, I read a little bit other things, but I mainly just read the poems that were sent in and did this interview was after putting it all together and reading the whole thing, as I realized, like, there was actually, like, themes that went through it. Intersections. Yeah, and um, especially, like, what, like, uh, with Rachel's essay that she just wrote, which was about objects and what's behind them and the connections and all that, and that's one of the things that Pinsky's always talks about, and one of the questions, that the final question I asked him, and there's also a couple other poems in here that talk about objects and things like that and Sarah and Amanda is that something you were uh, aware of as the 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 co-editors of this issue aware of that he was doing the interview or yeah was that okay with oh. you no um, no actually were you aware that there were you seeing consciously that there there might be these themes or like that objects were coming into it and that so you you started sort of moving towards maybe choosing pieces that or, or was it something that you sort of saw after you had happened to choose the different pieces or the different directors or editors of your different sections chose and you saw what you had? Uh, I know that on my part it was not, it was definitely not conscious and and um, just hearing Elliot read that, it just sort of refreshed in my mind that there there are themes that run through the book. But at least when I was reading, it was not a, a specific choice I made, although I'm sure that maybe there was something in the back of my mind that, you know, I'd read Rachel's excellent piece and that, that sort of stuck in my brain. And so that maybe helped influence the other pieces that we chose. But I know for me, I really was just looking for, for good writing. And I think it's just a lovely coincidence that it happened oh, yeah. that we could have sort of mm-hmm. somewhat um, some unity to our issue. So. Yeah. And poets and writers, I guess it's sort of we see connections everywhere, don't we? Mm-hmm. Sort of Definitely. kind of bring those out. So is this going to be a, a template that you hope to have in each of your issues, like the the um, that there'd be interviews, translations, uh, um, poetry, fiction, um, essays, uh, like we heard from Rachel. Um, Definitely for the issue that we have coming up, actually, um, we will do a big interview. Um, usually, um, I mean, for this issue, there is two of them that are maybe you know five, ten pages long. But the upcoming issue, we're looking to do. Um, shorter interviews so that we can get more writers and uh, their responses in. But also, um, we're looking to do more translations. Actually, we're working uh, with an Asian poet right now who's translating um, his work into English. Also, um, possibly some Latin translations, um, because translations are very interesting for us. Uh, Actually, in the issue that we have before us right now, Keith Taylor did um, translations of Christoph Karyatakis, and we actually have the original Greek that's in um, the book. So that was very neat for us to see. Yes, a lovely addition. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, translation that it should be. It's wonderful that you're including it in the review. I thought it was definitely, that was definitely a challenge for me personally, because I, I, um, I have a background in some design programs, and so I did all the, the laying in, uh, so to speak, of, of the actual words and pages of this issue before we sent it to the publisher. So I kept sending it back and forth to Sarah and Keith and saying, is this the right Greek? I don't want to screw up, especially my family's Greek too, so I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to <laughs> do shame the to the culture. <laughs> so I don't speak or read it, so I'm, I'm sort of a dumb Greek, but... Yeah, so that was definitely a, a struggle. It, I was very conscious of making that right, but uh, I think it's it's so cool and it's something that's so different that 
Uh, and we're so lucky that that Keith was willing to share that. Keith and Blame Reader were, were willing to share that work with us. So yes, and it's so exciting to hear that you have new things on deck for this coming issue. And yes. those will be, it's by the sounds of it, new work, like new translations. They haven't been printed Definitely. elsewhere. It's not coming from a book. It's work that's being done. To premiere, yes, here. this is definitely. Great. They're actually um, student um, writers here at U of M, so um, they're going to be very, very fresh translations. Um, and also, um, what was I going to say? Well, <laughs> well, not to worry. I wanted to. Um, I wanted to ask a, a question. How uh, it seems Im it's important because there's this blend of the student writers that you're just mentioning, Sarah, and then you've got like Robert Pinsky that Elliot just you know read an interview with. So you've got this blend of the the professional writers um, and students. So is that uh, like is that something that you just you believe in, or why why is that part of the mission of the the review? Well, when I when I was really thinking about um, the need for a, a review like this at Michigan, you know, there are there are definitely student publications on campus that publish only student fiction. But maybe this is maybe this is sort of conceited of me. But I think if we have a publication with more established writers or writers you, that you say, oh, Elizabeth Kostova, I I know her, I've read her work, um, it sort of it lends authority to the publication. Um, maybe maybe that's naive of me to think. But and I think as as a writer myself, um, I think it's it's an exciting opportunity to sort of have your work displayed in the same pages as these other other big literary names. And one of my favorite pieces in the Oleander is um, our very first story in the in the work called The Widow by, um, by Peter Ho Davies, which was a really cool piece, I think, for us to start off with and for us to get because he um, he told me he told us it was the basis for his novel. Um, the Welsh Girl, which which just came out last year, and it was a story he wrote when he was a student, when he was 20. And so that I thought was really cool. He wrote a little introduction for us, and I thought that was cool to sort of show what student writing looks like and what it can then later on become. And so that's what I think, in my mind, that's what I'm hoping for with a lot of our, our contributors who are students that... You know, someday they can be the big, the big names in in literature and and poetry, and then they can say they they got their start with the Oleander. So <laughs> I'm so and I'm so glad you brought that up, Amanda, because I wanted to talk about how that was your first piece in the book and how it was one of Peter's works from when. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Well, let's um, let's take a short break. Um, and if Rachel, if do you do the do honors it? with the, I've been. I thought I would <laughs> never say these words again. <laughs> You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Oh, no. 
Hi, if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, and here today, we're, we're talking about the Oleander Review. And uh, we've just been joined by Cyan James. Welcome, Cyan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> oh, it's good to, yeah, it's good to see you. Glad you could get away from work. Me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Cyan is going to be reading, along with Rachel tomorrow at the Shame and Drum a Bookshop for the launch of the Oleander Review. Uh, Cyan, will you, would you like to read a little something, like a teaser, I think you said in your email, for tomorrow? <laughs> okay. Well, I'd be glad to. And since I'm dashing away from work, this poem has something to do with work. I just happen to have it in my back pocket. I research influenza at the moment and the plague. But this poem was inspired by an earlier plague, the bubonic plague in the medieval ages. So it doesn't have a title yet, but let me just go ahead and read it. And please excuse it for being very fresh. Laid like lasagna in the ditches, wallowing in the ricotta of their plague pus, these are all the land dead the rat dead, marmot dead, dead over trade routes and the spoils of the dinner guests, pustule pickled into the float barrels of the river, made the bobbing worn floats of cast your nets no more upon the shore, for the king's daughter is sauced in her own blood, and if the blood of a flagellant falls upon your lip, do you lick it off? Ooh. <laughs> well, thank you, Cyan. That's you've like just totally got grabbed everyone's attention. <laughs> I love questions and poems. I will not too. be bringing real blood to the reading. <laughs> what about like fake blood? Like we'll see. Like, okay, okay. I don't know. I don't know why I'm asking that. It's not like it's Halloween or you something. You might have to ask Elizabeth Costova. I think. Oh, that's true. Oh God, yes. yeah, yeah. If we're gonna speak about blood, right? The historian. Okay. But, now I did not do this, I want to just read Cyan's short bio. I'm just doing things a little bass-ackwards here. Okay, Cyan James recently earned her MFA from the University of Michigan. She's staying in Ann Arbor, thank goodness, to finish her short story collection and novel and hopes to travel next to Mongolia. She's been most recently published in the Barcelona Review, the Beloit Journal of Poetry, Blackbird Review, and the Michigan Quarterly Review. And, of course... Oleander Review, which Yay. we are here today talking about. And um, what can you tell us a little bit about your, your piece? Because folks can pick this up and buy it now. It's the first issue. You're in the first issue, Cyan. So um, it's a segment out of your novel. Yes, right? it is. And my novel does have to do with disease as well. But it's a little more, I wouldn't go so far as to say sci-fi, but it does deal with development of genetic material and of blood repair devices. I won't go any further. I know it's a little mysterious, but I'm still she going through it, it myself. She <laughs> makes it sound very scientific there, but what I got from <laughs> what I got from this novel excerpt was, I mean, it's set in Mexico or something, New Mexico, one of those two things, and it's these boys who find these crazy vials full of blood and uh, come up with wild explanations to actually inject it into themselves, and all. It's like a, it's a really crazy story. When we read it for the, um, it actually went to Hopwood, and when we read it, we said we have to talk to. Some about publishing this so <laughs> well, thank you I'm glad you did so it's not it's not like DNA code like ones and zeros it's pretty interesting no no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> right well thank you thanks yeah so and you can read an excerpt of it in in the oleander um, is this still the is this the title cyan tireless on the way of Cain, or is that's that the working title still the working it's, title still, okay yes. wonderful well great and um well, let's see. Well, we've got a few more minutes here. Now I've, I've got you all here. What can what I next? can I ask, Cyan? Do you really yes. want to go to Mongolia? I actually really so do. So do I. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you What's can your go draw? together. <laughs> um, trains. Trains. I'm going and for falcons and horses. Really? Yeah. 
kind of like the end of the falcon and horse era in Mongolia is what's it fascinating is. to me. Yeah. When she read that in your bio, I had like a, a drop in my stomach. <laughs> she wants to go too. I wrote a sonnet um, about TP coming to Mongolia, actually. Really? And that got a prize a while ago, but That's it was really fun to write. Great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. All right. Wow, there's nothing like the energy of live radio and writers <laughs> talking, right? We're going to have to do some more of this because usually it's just me and one person yeah. in the room. So this is it's quite kind of exciting here. And Mongolia comes up usually, you know, maybe writers trip to Mongolia, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> you guys can put it together. I'll be your tour guide, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, well, um, yeah, so the Oleander Review. Um, Sarah, are there were there any sort of moments that like unexpected things that happen in the creation and, and, and Amanda too of this first issue for you that you just completely either blindsided in a good way or in a terrifying way or um, well, one of the things that was uh, really hard for us to come up with was money to good. Um, That's good to talk about to um, uh, get the issue going. So um, I mean, we actually our sponsors are mostly from the university too. But um, when it finally came down to the deadline in August, we were still six hundred and sixty-seven dollars short. And I personally had maybe seventy dollars in my bank account. And Amanda and I sat down and we said. I mean, we've put the entire issue together. It's all ready to go. I mean, where are we going to get six hundred dollars? So this from? was like fees to give to the the press. Yeah, the we we could not publish. We could not print the magazine if we didn't get six hundred dollars in I, maybe a month or a few weeks or so. So, um, actually, Amanda wrote a letter. We wrote a letter to Mary Sukoman, the president of the university, saying. Please, can we have $600? We really feel strongly about publishing this magazine. and You we don't mess around. That was great. <laughs> right to the top. <laughs> yeah, we were like, who could we ask? Maybe our parents. Okay, the president. <laughs> sure. But um, yeah, and actually, we didn't hear back from her for a while, so we bar- borrowed money from our parents. At least I know I did. Um, with the hope of paying them back. And then sometime late August, her uh, Mary Sue's business office sent us a letter and said, we really think what you're doing is uh, a very good thing for the university, so we're going to fund you for this so that you can start with a clean slate on your second issue. And that was that was a big, pivotal moment for us, someone who came right out and said, what you're doing is good and you need to continue doing it. Yeah, yeah, and a, a testament to you, like getting you're getting it done and believing in it, mm-hmm. and then also sort of a lesson in how long bureaucracy sometimes <laughs> takes. To it. Yeah. But she's but she came through. The the university came through. How so? Are you grant writing for this next issue, or is that part of like? Is there someone who's heading that up on your staff? Sarah, um, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah wearing many of the hats. That was, yeah, that yeah. was me last year, and so I think poor Sarah has had to take that over. In fairness, we did ask Mary Sue, I think, for um, quite a bit more than the $600. My mother always said, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. So we yeah. shot really high. But <laughs> thank you. Right. And Mary Sue, money, if so. you're listening now. Thank you, Thank Mary you. <laughs> and we have to thank uh, the Michigan Student Assembly and uh, the Arts at Michigan Mini Grant Program because they gave us a lot of money as well to cover um, many other expenses. But yeah, it's, it's exhaustive trying to get money. Um, but thankfully, at a university this size, there are so many different options and resources that one can use and um but you want this to last too so yes, it's, it's like trying to find a, a footprint right that that the people who come behind you can walk into like the red cedar review because mm-hmm. that's you, like 40 years you mm-hmm. said look and so you want that for the oleander right yeah well, that's something keith said to us he said you know you guys will be gone and if this thing bombs then it's then it's on me so i think we're very <laughs> cautious about trying to make sure we keith's rep yeah exactly <laughs> 
the king of creative writing's rep is at stake. <laughs> and so I think we're very, at least I'm very cautious about Definitely. trying to get, we, we are trying to get some seed money and especially by selling the books too. Um, to make it so we don't have to keep begging people for money everywhere where we can find it. So, And actually, it's been helpful now that we actually have the finished product, we have the mm-hmm. magazines in our hands, we can sell those. So, I mean, last year we were selling the idea of the magazine to people, and that's fine if you can um, get some very generous donors. But um, this year, magazine sales have helped it. us out a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, we're actually getting money from the gradu- graduate program this year, so that's, um, that's a big help, too. Oh, that's great! Yeah, and and this is something you can send to people and definitely and grant makers. That's yeah, it is. It's great. Yeah, I keep, I keep like f- flipping through it here. <laughs> um, Rachel, how long are you going to be in town? Because you've flown in to to do the the reading mm-hmm. tomorrow. Um, Cyan. Yeah. Um, hey, Rachel, how'd you get the money to fly in here? You know, that's a <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <laughs> with your help, Sarah. Um, no, no, with the help of with the help of Sarah, um, the the Michigan. Graduate Department of English um, agreed to purchase my plane Wonderful. ticket, which allowed me to come from um, somewhere deep in the American South to uh, the beautiful Michigan winter. So um, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciated all your effort, especially Sarah. How much longer will you be be there, Rachel, down in Spartanburg? What's um, your 11-month stint? How, I started how in June. I'm done at the end of April. So I've got just under four months left. Um, I'm going to be here in Ann Arbor. I'm not sure. My parents want me to go to Grand Rapids to see them. Um, so I think I'm going to go there for a night or two, but I'll be here for the next couple of days. So oh, hopefully wonderful. see some familiar faces. Well, it's good to have you back. And, and the writing is going well in this residency. Yeah, it's, it's, it is going well. It's been, um, it's been a wonderful experience in more ways than I can probably articulate. Um, a good learning experience to say the least. So it must be, well, and now soon maybe um, maybe your your times will dovetail. Cyan and Rachel, you can make the plans for Mongolia. Yeah, why I not? Hope so. if that's yes. <laughs> I hope so. It's fate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Any or do you guys see of the oleander? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. Well, we'll be sure to ask you for our airfare. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll send you like an extra copy of the magazine you can read on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Every little bit helps, right? Well, um, well, thank you all for being here. Let's see. I have some announcements to make, which I might as well. Um, some literary announcements. Um, tonight, uh, let's see. So Wednesday, January 16th at 7 p.m., um, foreign policy expert, conflict analysis, and author Hans Artens will discuss his political novel, The Writing on the Wall, um, at Nicola's Books, where you can also get a copy of The Oleander. Yes. Awesome. Okay. And then tomorrow, there's lots of readings. We've got this great one that we've been talking about um, the whole hour here on Living Writers. Uh, the Oleander Review will be uh, having their launch at Shaman Drum, 7 p.m. Uh, let's see, with Cyan James and Rachel Harkai, who are here with us today, and also Elizabeth Kostova and, and, and others, or, or will be those three will be here. Those are our main readers. Um, we are Great. gonna have lots of staff there too, and most of the English department. You know, anyone who can come, it's gonna be a great time. Uh, just celebrating the success of the Oleander, really. Yeah, yeah, and and also, how can you get involved with that Oleander? Like, they, can people just email you, or maybe come tomorrow and? 
There's space for people to join now. There's always space for people. I mean, I get emails all the time. Can I come? I only have um, the second semester that I can help. We we take people on all the time, and people come and go as they study abroad or get jobs and go other places. But, I mean, we really created this as um, a venue for undergraduate writers to blossom and really get in contact with um, the writing program and the writing community here. Yeah, and know that you can do things like send an email to Pinsky, and he's going to email you back, maybe. Right? <laughs> right, Elliot? Okay. Um, well, back to the announcements. Also, tomorrow, um, you can do both of these great readings. Um, at 5 p.m., we've got the Zell Visiting Writers series with Margaret Lazarus Dean, um, reading from her novel, The Time It Takes to Fall, and Jas Winder Bolina, reading from his poetry collection, Carrier Wave, uh, and that will be excellent. Also on Friday, um, in the Webster Reading Series, uh, they present poetry by Amanda Carver, prose by Becky Adams at the Michigan League at 7 p.m. Uh, upcoming on The Living Writers Show, we have Joanne Harris, who will be in Seattle Friday, January 18th at Third Place Books. And also, Andrew Sean Greer is on deck. Thanks for listening. Thanks, uh, Oleander Review, um, and to Cyan James for making it from work. Rachel Harkai from flying in uh, from uh, South Carolina. Uh, thanks for listening, Ann Arbor. Uh, it's been the Living Writers Show. Until next time. Recalling thrills of our love There's one thing I am certain of Return I Sports Report.
there to pick it up. Now here to Geis. Geis makes a move, shoots, and scores! Milan Geis with a sick move in the 